When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Some failures are awful and you might never get over them, but the one thing I can guarantee is that you will learn something from them. I'd always wanted to write books from the age of four. So I had a lot of hope for this novel. And so it got published, it went out into the world. When you say a savaging, that's that's too complimentary. They all absolutely hated it, but not only that, they egged each other on to detest it even more. I still see my divorce as a failure, but I no longer see failure as a negative. To face up to that took me a really long time. I felt so ashamed that all of my loved ones had come to that wedding and had made an effort to interrupt their lives to celebrate that union. And it hadn't worked out, not for want of trying on my part. When you think of your biggest failures, what do you think of? If you don't mind, I probably won't talk that much about it. It might derail this conversation because I'm still very much in it. guys how are you this episode is great i've been so excited to have elizabeth day on the podcast for a while because i'm obsessed with her podcast if you haven't listened already please go and listen to it it's changed my life in many a way and i've really 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 enjoyed hearing about the failures of people who we traditionally see as very successful so i kind of wanted to flip it and reverse it for this episode i wanted to hear a little bit about her failures and I could not have asked for more. She has been incredibly vulnerable and open and we've had some really interesting conversations as well about the role of vulnerability in women being successful and how we see women as more likeable when they're super vulnerable and the fact that we therefore need to, you know, divulge everything about ourselves in order to be likeable at a position of success. And... I thought that was quite interesting and the type of thing I could talk about all day. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. We talked a lot about things like relationships, seeing relationships as failures, divorce. We're not kind of saying that failure doesn't exist, but how to see failure then as a positive because of the things you learn out of it. And I know that that obviously sounds a very specific kind of almost cheesy thing. But actually, if you look at every single failure you've experienced, you will probably not regret it most of the time and sometimes there are those ones you regret and you still need to be able to live alongside them and you need to be able to be happy and you need to be able to be up within the down so I really enjoyed talking about that we also talked briefly about fertility and Elizabeth's fertility journey and her kind of sharing that online but also needing to kind of maintain privacy so I hope you really enjoy this episode I really 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 enjoyed it it was one of those ones where I stood up and everyone in the room afterwards said that was great that's gonna be so good so I hope you agree And as always, have a lovely day. Elizabeth Day is an award-winning British author, broadcaster, and influential host of the hugely successful How to Fail podcast. Every week, How to Fail invites a new influential guest to open up and talk honestly about challenges and vulnerabilities in their personal life in a bid to show listeners that perfection doesn't exist and failure is often just redirection. Elizabeth was inspired to start the podcast following a particularly challenging period in her own life, a time where nothing went according to plan. 
Approaching her 40s, Elizabeth found herself single, divorced, and not yet with the children she'd dreamed of having. Accepting that life is full of failure, Elizabeth launched the podcast to show people how to turn failings into something more positive and how it's never too late to change your life. With influential people from a range of backgrounds talking about failure, the podcast virtually took off overnight, attracting hugely influential guests, including Mel C and Brene Brown, to come on and share their story. Today's episode is for anyone who needs to celebrate the myriad of things that might be going wrong. In this episode, Elizabeth shares her honest, uplifting story of her own experience of failure, as well as the insights gained doing interviews with people from all walks of life. The message of today's episode is vitally important. Things in life will go wrong, but failure and what we can learn from it can inform a future of success. I'm so excited for this. This is one of those podcasts that's like very selfish that I just like love to talk to you. <laughs> I have been to your podcast so many times. To set the scene on your kind of career and where you are now, I'd love to get a whistle-stop tour from the beginning up to now. Okay. Big ask. Fine. In three words or fewer. <laughs> um, so I was born in Epsom, yeah. a little town in Surrey, and lived there for the first four years of my life. And my dad... He's now retired, but he was a surgeon and he got a job in the north of Ireland, mm -hmm. which is where his mother, my grandfather, and my grandmother was from. And we moved over to Northern Ireland when I was four in 1982, uh, moved to just outside Derry. It was like a, quite a rough time to be right. in that particular part of the world because there was essentially a civil war going on, mm -hmm. um, a lot of sectarian violence and a lot of military checkpoints to get through on our way to school and balaclavaed men marching in the streets in August, right. which is quite a surreal thing to go through as a child because yeah. you sort of just accept it yeah, wholesale I can imagine. as this is my life. Mm -hmm. And it's only relatively recently that I've looked back and thought, oh no, that, that left quite traumatic. some stuff. Yeah, yes. yeah. So I grew up in Ireland, um, and if you've ever watched Derry Girls, that mm -hmm. was absolutely my era, my experience. And I went to secondary school in Belfast, fun fact, same secondary school as Jamie Dornan. Um, we bonded over that when he came on How to Fail. <laughs> and I didn't have a very good time at that school, partly because I still spoke with an English accent. And so there were various assumptions made about me. Right, especially because of the current state. Exactly. So... At that time, if you spoke with an English accent, there were assumptions made that you were part of the British military, right. which we weren't as a family. But I can understand why that assumption yeah. was made and why people disliked me because of it. So I didn't have a great time. And I ended up sitting a scholarship exam for a boarding school in England mm -hmm. and got it and then started going to boarding school in Malvern in the West Midlands. And I was there from the age of 13 to 18. And then I was lucky enough to get good A-levels and to go to Cambridge, which I'm so unbelievably grateful for. Had an amazing time at university, loved my subject, did a history degree, but did lots of student journalism while I was there. Mm -hmm. And I'd always known that I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And I was very lucky that I met some key people along the way who mm -hmm. encouraged me and supported me in that. Yeah. So from a very young age, I was writing for my local newspaper at the age of 12. <laughs> Sorry, what? It's so, it's so mad to say I that now. I was playing hopscotch. <laughs> yeah, well, I was too. But when I wasn't playing hopscotch, I was writing a fortnightly <laughs> column for the Dairy Journal. About hopscotch. Actually, my first ever column for them was about Australian soap stars and how I wish they'd <laughs> stop releasing music, which totally dates me. I look back at myself and I think, how blissful must it have been to be that sure of what I thought? Yeah. 
And I didn't have a column then for many, many, many years because yeah. it honestly took me about like three decades to build up my confidence in what I thought again. Really interesting because I think the same about the beginning of my like YouTube career really? because I was just so I'm completely naive and also like beautiful naivety, like literally just being able to be like, no, 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 but I believe in this. And I, I always yeah. talked about like politics and like everything. And it's all it, a lot of it is stuff that kind of I very much still believe now. It was very, you know very in terms of like talking about like the abortion referendum all of this mm. things I would still very much talk mm. about but I talked in like like so fearlessly in so yeah. much detail in like any sort of situation like absolutely no fear about that about other opinions about everything and like literally did not even phase me in the slightest so I'd be like honestly if you don't agree fuck you it, it's so <laughs> it's interesting so that because I do think there's instinct and there's ignorance yeah like when you don't know what you don't know right you feel much more confident in expressing uh -huh. yourself and what you were saying, that some of your political views are absolutely the same. Instinctively, you, you sort of know that. Yeah. And instinct is very important, particularly as women, to hold on to. Yeah. But ignorance is obviously very important to get rid of. But the more you know, yeah. the more the you realise you know what you don't know. know. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the more you worry about how it's going to be received. Which is exactly, I think, because it's not that any, any of those things I don't stand by now and I still make sure to be... I'm, probably like very political as it, it kind of yeah. compared to you know what you might see as an influencer and I'm like proud of that but I did just very much have that like ballsiness of being like kind of assumed I knew everything as mm. well was really happy to like I went on fucking like daily politics and just was like wow this, 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 this. and like yeah. now I would it's not that I don't kind of believe in the same things at all it's more like I want to make sure that I know every single yes. thing about a topic before I talk about it like all of these different things because I'm just elder and more mature and there's actually part of that that I should probably be able to get rid of and just it, people pleasery stuff as well yeah. wanting to make sure that it's you know that I make sure that there's every single part of the argument and I caveat it with all the appropriate points and actually it's probably just more helpful at points to just be like no no yes. this is what I believe in and I know we're going off on a tangent here and I will go back to my career path shortly I intend but to do many tangents <laughs> I do think that's so interesting because I also think some people get away with not knowing very much, mm. but are arrogant and entitled right. and just put themselves forwards. Yes. And it, the mind sort of boggles sometimes. They're all around us and they're the ones who quite often get airtime. And sometimes so when, I, when I'm feeling insecure about myself, I think, okay, I'm going to imagine the most arrogant, entitled person of my acquaintance or even just a sort of hypothetical fictional character. Mm. And I'm going to pretend that I have just 5% of their ego and see what a difference that makes. <laughs> yeah. Because otherwise we're constantly, there's an internal narrative. I'm doing it right now. I'm questioning what I'm saying and whether I'm saying to it make accurately sure, enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so interesting. I think it also comes with having a podcast because you listen to things back and you're mm -hmm. instantly like, oh, actually that came across quite patronising or that came across, you know, not fully considered. And yeah. then you make sure the next time you say that you don't say it in that way, even though if that was in normal conversation, no one would probably pick up on it. Yeah. But it's like a self-policing thing. It's like when people talk about, you know, with imposter syndrome and then you start saying, well, just embrace it like as, you know instead flip it on its head and have like fraudulent con man syndrome and just start yes, being like yes, I'm amazing yes. like who cares if I'm in, in this place like yes. I will now embrace this place yes. that I am in completely um, mm. and you can't get me out of it so yeah. I might as well do it well <laughs> and actually it's so true that people get there's kind of more airtime to get given to less consideration dare I say it <laughs> dare oh. I say it the fraudulent con man syndrome says yes a lot of white male fronted podcasts Yes. And I actually just get away with stuff. And some of them are so brilliant. Yeah. But get away with stuff that I don't think 
I would get away with as a uh, woman. No, no, I think no I'm way. more policed. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I could not agree more. It's really interesting. We actually <laughs> we said the other day that I should record word for word a podcast that was done in that way. So like someone who's generally considered, you know, well-spoken, like any of these things and record word for word. And I promise you I'd get cancelled for it. I had a really interesting conversation with Catelyn Moran mm. in this sort of area where she was saying that quite often that assumption of privilege and also one's awareness that we should say and check ourselves when we are talking about something that affects myriad people, not just us, is often used to do women down right. or to do marginalised people, like marginalised people of any gender down, who are not born into a world made in their image, where it's it makes us question our own competence. Right, the point about successful men is like definitely very prevalent. I think if you think of all of the big people in the public eye, I genuinely think that you will know a lot more about the women's backgrounds yeah. and where they came from and what they did have and what they didn't have versus like founders who've raised huge funding rounds who've like posted about it and I've never once thought oh like I wonder what background they yeah. came from because I assume that it's possible regardless yeah and that's the problem that's the thing. it puts it on a back foot because you think there must be something here which is important to know and it's very important to contextualize and it's very important for people like me to constantly contextualize that because I don't want anyone to think like you know, they're just not working hard enough or whatever mm. it might be. Let's add the other people into the mix too in terms of contextualising. Yeah. Um, so I think that's very, very interesting. So like that was my thought. <laughs> okay. So I graduated from Cambridge and then I got work experience at the Evening Standard newspaper on their Londoner's Diary column, which is like a gossip column, mm -hmm. within a week. And this is the first and only time it's ever happened to me that work experience translated into a job. Oh, wow. Because I managed to bring in a scoop. <laughs> and and they gave me a job and they said that they would train me during that first year, which was great because I was going to do either like a post-grad journalism course or go and work on a local newspaper and kind of work my way up. So I was on the Evening Standard for a year and then I went to the Sunday Telegraph for a three-month trial as a news reporter and that turned into a job. And I was there for three years then I um, went as a feature writer to the Mail on Sunday because I knew that I wanted to write features. Like writing's always been what's drawn me to journalism. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an ideal paper for me, but it was an ideal job. I was there for a year and then I got my dream job, which was on The Observer as a feature writer there. And I was 29 when I got that job. I spent eight years there. There were amazing things that I learned. And it also taught me a lot about myself because at the end of those eight years, my life in various ways imploded. I had got married to the wrong person. I got divorced. I left the Observer with no job to go to. I went freelance and it was one of the best decisions I could ever have made. Mm. And alongside all of that, I was writing novels. So um, I wrote my first novel, Scissors, Paper, Stone, came out when I was 32, I think. And since then, I've written um, five novels and two nonfiction books. Wow. And then I also launched How to Fail, the podcast. Yeah. And we can talk a bit more about that, about how on paper it seemed like my career was successful in certain ways. But in my personal life, it absolutely didn't feel like that. Yeah. And it was the disconnect between those two things that actually prompted my desire to have more open discussions about failure. 
Before we get onto the podcast itself, yeah. I remember that you said that when you, I think in 2012, when you released your first book, is yes. that right? Yeah. The first kind of two reviews you read of it just completely <laughs> savaged yes. you. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah, that was a, it was a really great lesson, one mm-hmm. that was uncomfortable to live through. Mm-hmm. So my first novel, Scissors, Paper, Stone, came out at the beginning of 2012, and I think anyone who has ever produced anything and put it out into the public forum might relate to this, where when you're creating something, you can exist in quite a nice bubble. Of Mm -hmm. course, it's hard work to create, but you exist in a nice bubble of thinking, I'm creating something really meaningful and it it will have meaning for lots of people who I've never even met. And it might just change the landscape. So I had all of these things in my head. I was like, it's, it, it could be, like, it could be that people really love this book. And that's sort of a trick, I think, that your brain plays in order to get you through it, in order to get you through what can be quite a hard creative process. So I had a lot of hope for this novel. And it was incredibly important to me because I'd always wanted to write books. From the age of four, I loved books yeah. and wanted to write them. And so it got published and it went out into the world And the first review that I ever watched was an Irish late night cultural discussion program. And I knew that they had chosen the book to talk about. And my publicist was very excited. I was like, they never really talk about debut novels. I think it's the first time they've done it. It's really great that they picked it. And I watched it the next day on my laptop at my then kitchen table. And when you say a savaging, that's that's too complimentary. It was it was it was three commentators and um and the kind of the presenter, and they all absolutely hated it. But not only that, they egged each other on to detest it even more. Right. And I remember at one point one of them saying, "It's so bad. It's not even her fault. It's pro- I want to know who the editor was who allowed this out into the world." And I was like <laughs> sitting there bawling my eyes out. I can imagine. Close the laptop and rang one of my closest friends, Simon, who works in the art world. And he gave me a really amazing piece of advice, which has never left me. And he said, the thing about great art is that you want it to trigger big opinions. You want people to love it. And that means that people are also going to hate it. Yeah. The worst possible thing you can do if you have aspirations to create something meaningful is to have a mediocre response of people being like, yeah, it was okay. That's very true. And that is a great piece of advice. It was an amazing piece of advice. The second review I had was in the Evening Standard, my former paper. I've never forgotten the name of the person who wrote it. Really? I'm a Scorpio. I do bear grudges. (laughs) (laughs) And this person just spent the whole review comparing me unfavorably to another more successful author called Zoe Heller, who I absolutely love and adore yeah. Zoe Heller's writing. But I wasn't trying to be Zoe yeah. Heller. It was quite bizarre that they'd chosen to compare me. She didn't have a book out or anything. And I just thought that's really unfair. That yeah. one really rankled because it felt unjust. It's not like someone said on the front being like, oh, the new Zoe Heller. Not it's at like, all. It's like deciding to be, say, like my book and deciding to be like Simon Sinek and yes. being like, well, it's not, it's like, it's, I'd literally well, it's, recommend it's you to buy it. It's not is it? <laughs> but I'd, like, yeah, it's like, I'd recommend you to buy that one. Like, yeah. As in, like, it's not, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, I can imagine it put you in a place where you're like, I don't know. It, reviews are hard as well because it's not like, first of all, you don't need to back yourself up, but you also ha- like automatically have no voice. And mm. I think that's the point. Yeah. And you don't need to have a voice and you need to be fine with it not being a positive review. And like, I made a deal with myself that, assu- like, weirdly 
because I'm in the because I'm in the public eye before even my f book came out there were the only reviews on there were just hate comments mm -hmm. and so people could review it before the book even came out and I was like oh my god how am I ever going to deal with this because it's just the book's not even out yet and the only reviews it's got has been people giving like one star reviews and it like killed me yeah. because I was like guys I'm, like I'm working so hard on this and you don't even you know I think people assumed it would be a very certain thing I remember there was like a tweet that went viral of someone being like oh it's gonna you know it's just I can only imagine it's going to be you know a very classic xyz and like the whole reason for writing it had been kind of completely different and it wasn't a memoir and it wasn't you know all of those things but i remember being like oh my god i just i'm actually gonna just cancel it i'm gonna pay back the advance like i'm not gonna right. do it but actually really what it was a lesson for me was kind of like i'm in the public eye if you're ever going to leave a review before a book's out it's only ever going to be negative if you're going out of your way yeah. to do that otherwise you know otherwise it would be I guess false advertising and just being fine with the fact that like if you're going to put something out it's not necessarily going to be received in the way you want it to mm. it also there are going to be people who hate things like there are pieces of writing I hate that other people love mm. and it's not necessarily trolling in any way it's just like there are different people with different tastes every single good book I read I go on the Goodreads because I like to read the reviews after I've read it and I like go on it and I'm like because it will be like my favourite book ever. And there'll be someone like one star being like, this is the worst thing. Like, and I'm like, Goodreads I want to argue the worst. with them. <laughs> yeah, Goodreads are really harsh. But you're so right. And the thing that I keep coming back to, which is a kind of evolution of what Simon was saying, is that there are some people in this world who don't like cheese. Now, I can't personally relate to that because mm. I absolutely love cheese. <laughs> and I'm half Swiss, so it's part of my cultural heritage. <laughs> And, but isn't that interesting? Like, I don't think they're wrong. wrong. I mean, yeah. well, I probably do, but I don't think that they're bad people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's just a question of taste. And in the same way, I met my husband on Hinge. I went through loads of really disappointing dates from dating apps. And people were not the right fit. We were not the right fit for each other. That doesn't make us bad people. It just makes us people who are shaped by our own emotional baggage and our own life experience yeah. to view things a certain way and to need certain things. And yeah. so I've become a lot, you know, it's still really hard. I, I, I don't, I care what people think. And I think that's a good thing because I like to believe I'm empathetic. So right. I have to care what people think and feel. But I've definitely got better at metabolizing negative criticism now and yeah. understanding that it's not a wholesale definition on me but as it, a person. I also think that the times in my life that I've got caught so much... It, being in the public eye, I don't... I personally don't think you can be a people pleaser. I don't think... You should either not be in the public eye yeah. or not. But just as in you can have it as an inherent like part of you, but you actively have to act against it, I think. Yes. Otherwise, you are going to live your entire life in hell because you are just going to constantly... And that's literally... I mean, that was part of the reason why I decided to stop YouTube. It's part of the reason I decided to change my career. Just because I was like, do you know what? This isn't good for me. And I, I also want to keep the part of myself that wants to make people around me happy to an extent. Yeah. I don't want to keep the part of, part of myself that essentially she just like loses myself in the way of pleasing other people yeah um but I do want to keep my empathy I want to keep my kindness I want to keep all of these things and so I was like not the career for me great cool move on but I really think it's very interesting because the times that I've got caught so much in people pleasing have been the times that I also think I've come across the worst because it's always me trying to like make sure that I appeal to this person and this person and this person and don't make anyone upset and all of this mm. and the people I like to consume on social media they have their strong opinions they stick to them and then they're also like 
it, like if you don't, I, I literally complain about me in your group chat. Like yeah. honestly, rip me to shreds. And I've had to consciously channel that so much because I've been like, it's also doing me a disservice, both my mental health and also it's doing the opposite of people pleasing in terms of the way that I, you know, you want to, what, the way that you want to show up in the world. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a, a really good thing to remember is that culturally, a lot of people have been taught that to be a people pleaser is nice. Right. And a generous thing and a selfless thing. And actually, when you take it to its extreme, it isn't. Because what I did in my years of extreme people-pleasing was I outsourced my sense of self to other people's mm -hmm. opinions of me. Worse than that, to my perception of other people's opinions of me. And I never took the time to know myself and to understand what I wanted and what my desires were. And that led me into bad relationships toxic work situations where I was incapable of standing up for myself or showing up as myself. And actually that puts the burden of that work on mm. other people. And so I find that a very helpful thing to remember that it's not being selfish yeah. to stop people pleasing. It's actually the opposite. Yeah. And it's actually quite hard to, I think we think, as you say, we think of people pleasing as a good like a moral good but then actually when we when we look at how it affects the people around us how it affects our relationships like all of these things like it's even in a relationship for example it's not good to be with the wrong person as in mm. like you, you know you don't know that most of the time and you know it'll yeah. come out in the end and also I fully believe that some relationships are only meant to last a certain amount of time and aren't meant to be you know your I whole agree. life just because of the way that we kind of society perceives it but it's not it's not nice for you and it's not nice for someone else. So I think yes. we getting out of your mind that people pleasing is a, has a good end because I think we think that people pleasing is kind of selfless, as you say, for this end of everything being better. Actually, I kind of see mm. it as a lose-lose yes. and that is separating the traits of empathy and kindness, which I think are really important. But I don't think you can be empathetic and kind without being empathetic and kind to yourself. Mm. Because as you say, you just completely lose yourself and yeah. you're unable to be yeah. a good friend to other people. I also find that in toxic work situations, toxic relationships, toxic friendships, I disproportionately spend my time trying to please those people. And I still still find myself doing that. And I like get happier when it's like fine and you know all of these things. And that's as someone who cuts people off quite easily and I kind of consider myself someone who's like protects my peace but there are still very people pleasery traits in me yeah. that I disproportionately kind of go towards that end and then it's like you know for all of the other friends that are amazing to me and all of the other bits of work that are amazing it's like no I need to spend more time on those people do you know what Myers-Briggs personality type you are yes what are um, you? I am the the protagonist one okay I'm an I'm an INFJ which Interesting. Is super, and what I do know about the INFJ is that we have very high tolerance and patience and we'll put up with a lot of stuff and probably are a bit people pleasery. Mm -hmm. And but there'll come a point where you have filled that jug up too much and when it starts spilling over, we're done. And when you said you can let people go, like I, it's, it was so interesting to me when I realized this because I do consider myself an empathetic person and I couldn't compute how I could be empathetic but also close the door on people and just be like, I'm done. And that's why. That's so interesting. I That could not sound more like me. I was, I always, so I was talking to Tala's managing director the other day. We have a like 
every week we have like an hour long meeting where we go through all different areas of the company, but we also, you know, touch base with each other. It's a very demanding job, checking we're all okay, all of this. So we often talk about kind of personal things as well. And she was saying to me, she was like, I have never met someone who cuts things off so easily that don't serve them anymore. Like I have, it's like I get to a point and I put up, exactly yeah. what you say, I put up with so much and I will go to the ends of the earth for the people around me and like to, I, especially because I'm in a particularly fortunate position, I consider it a way where it's like, I see my friends work so hard. Like I want people to be happy. I want to be able to help people as much as possible. The second, and it will just be like that, like the second I'm pushed too far, it's like I wake up one morning and I'm just like, nope, don't have any attachment to it. And it's literally just gone i think done. you're an enfj because if you're you're extrovert yeah although i think as i've grown up i haven't you're done pretty... the test for a few years i think as we i've grown up i might have moved to yeah introvert or i but... just i cannot I, I yeah i think i'm far more i present as extroverted definitely if yeah. someone like meets me because i'm very like chatty and hopefully quite friendly and all of this but i cannot deal with more than about half an hour of a social situation. Okay, well then, yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe you're closer to me than I thought. But I do think the older I've got as well, the more I realise that even when a relationship is over or a friendship is in a different phase, I can still think of that with love. Yeah. Because I totally agree with you. For me, a relationship is not a failure just because it ends. It is part of shaping our personal landscape in the same way that a volcano can shape a landscape and then remain dormant for many, many years, yeah. I can still think of those relationships with love. Mm -hmm. So when I say that I shut the door, it's almost like that enables me then to think of them with love. Mm -hmm. Because to enable something toxic to keep on going and to keep pleasing whatever energy that is, you're going to find it very difficult to think fondly of them. Yeah. Letting it go actually is more loving sometimes. Yeah. That's what I've realized relatively recently. I think that's really, really true. And I think that very much kind of comes into the people pleasing thing is it's essentially saying, you know, you get to a point where you can't please either of you anymore and you get to that kind of cutoff point and almost by moving past that and like closing the door, you're able to you know, just able to, I guess, yeah. detach yourself and move on. And I think there's an important lesson there for anyone who kind of has people pleasing tendencies. And I think probably most people do, I would say, especially women. I'm not sure yeah. if that's fair to say. Um, but I would say that given we are meant to be nice to deal with at all times, I would say that that kind of probably very much comes into it. And therefore, sometimes stopping people pleasing in terms of cutting something off is the kindest thing you can do to both them mm. and you and actually pleases more people in the end mm. I want to talk then you just spoke briefly about kind of relationships and not necessarily seeing that as a failure I know that before you started the podcast mm. having just gone through your divorce I know that in that time you did kind of see it as I a did. failure can yeah. you talk a little bit about that yes so I think also I still see my divorce as a failure but I no longer see failure as a negative right <laughs> so that's well, okay like, interesting yes so obviously there are negative things that come about as a result of failure but I'm incredibly grateful for it now <laughs> but there's no getting away from the fact that that marriage ended and failed and when we were walking down the aisle neither of us thought that that would be the case yeah and not only that it felt so shameful and I don't know whether anyone listening to this who has been through a divorce or a public breakup can sort of relate to this, where I felt so ashamed that all of my loved ones had come to that wedding and had bought us gifts and had made an effort to interrupt their lives to celebrate that union. And it hadn't worked out and not for want of trying on my part. And 
to face up to that took me a really long time. It took me, I think, a year within the marriage itself. It was a very slow motion thing and mm. there were lots of conversations and lots of therapy again on my part. And, and actually, it was a very difficult thing to go through. And I look back now and I realize I was depressed. Right. And my best friend, Emma, who is also a psychotherapist, which is an amazing combination. Very helpful. I'm, so I'm helpful. looking for one of those if anyone wants oh to be gosh. my friend. You can't have her as a best friend, but you could have her as your therapist. She's incredible. Perfect. And she describes it as the perspex screen time where she would sit down opposite me and feel like she couldn't get to me, that she was knocking on a perspex screen. There was a sort of avatar of me, but I wasn't in touch. I was numb. I wasn't yeah. in touch with my own feelings. And I now realize that that's a symptom of, it was mild depression for me. And luckily sort of therapy and Emma and my friends and family got me through that. Mm. So there was no doubting that it felt like a failure. And after that divorce, I thought, okay, so I failed at this. What does that mean? And I looked at it and I realized that what it meant was I didn't know what was going to happen next because mm -hmm. life had not gone according to my plan. And that can be very scary, but it can also be liberating because you yeah. think, well, what do I actually want to You've fill? You've suddenly the... given a blank slate. Exactly. Which I think it's really interesting. And I think what feeds into this a lot, I think a lot about the timeline put on women in terms of like settling down, getting married if you choose to, having children, like the traditional, not just societal pressures, but like kind of everything you know just like all different sides of the pressures that come into that and looking at like the statistics of like how most actually like the majority of breakups happen around like late 20s mm. where people are thinking actually no this is not going to be the person I'm going to be with and also the amount of people who stick with something because they think well yeah <laughs> if I'm gonna do it like yeah. I guess it's gonna be now and I can imagine there are so many people, even listening to this, who probably have that kind of mindset yeah. of thinking that because there's this kind of pressure, it has to be, you know, delivered. No. It has to be delivered within that time. And so, what if it's the wrong person? Or so, what if there's that kind of like feeling? Also, probably who are, you know, as you say, already married and already kind of in that situation, mm. and you almost think it's that like sunk cost fallacy where you think, well, I've invested time yes. into this. All my friends and family have come to a day. We've said we're completely in love. We've bought, you know, like we've made a life together. I guess we're in this now. Mm. And I can imagine it took you a long I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Time to even recognize that actually that wasn't, that didn't have to be it. And yeah. you could move on from that. But I can imagine that being terrifying. It was terrifying. 
I was lucky and unlucky in a way. So part of what contributed to the breakdown of that relationship was um, fertility treatment and a difficult and challenging fertility journey, which during the course of one year, I did two rounds of IVF back to back, both unsuccessful. Then I became pregnant naturally and I had a miscarriage at three months. And that was a lot to go through in mm. a single year. And we can talk more about that because that's a huge part of why particularly women who want to have biological children, why they feel there is a timeline. But what it did mean was that I didn't have children to consider. So if you mm -hmm. are in a relationship and you do have children, I'm not even going to pretend that my experience is anything compared to yours because that's so difficult. And actually my now husband, he is divorced and has three kids. And I see how brilliantly he and his ex co-parent, but how difficult that is and how challenging it is and mm. how you feel that you've let your children down at every single juncture. And so there's a lot more to consider if there are other people involved. And I absolutely a huge believer in working as much as possible in a committed relationship to try and sustain it. But if you've done all of that and it's still not working, then I promise you, you are not a failure. Yeah. You have worked and tried your hardest and the relationship might fail, but you're not a failure. Mm. You're actually really, really strong for being able to acknowledge that. And there is always life on the other side of it. Mm. And I think the thing about plans, me, for me, failure, my definition of failure is when something doesn't go according to plan. You have to then question the plan. Yeah. Where did you get it from? Yeah. Who told you that you had to be a certain way? Because quite often... The people you're getting that advice from are not people that you should be taking advice mm -hmm. from. It could be an inner critic. It could be um, a strict teacher. It could be an unloving parent. It could be society itself yeah. with all of its patriarchal nonsense. It could be that you've watched too many 1980s rom-coms, as <laughs> I did, and that you have a very heteronormative, conventional sense mm. of what you think you should be like in your 20s and 30s. And I'm here to say that none of that None of that needs to inform how you feel about yourself. Mm. That actually it's so much more valid and so much more crucial to take the time to know who you are and what you want for yourself mm. right now rather than projecting five, ten years in the future. Yeah, no, I think that is such a valuable piece of advice. And I think we also all need to hear that kind of over and over because I think yeah. every time I think I've internalised that, I realise that I'm, I'm not acting upon that. And I think that, you know, it takes me double the amount of time to realize those things when I have the either like societal views or, you know, self-imposed kind of, I guess, plans in terms of what I thought my life would be like or my career would be like or my relationships would be like in, in whatever way. And it is so tough to get out of that. Yeah. And I think when you have not only society, but kind of biology and like all of these things on top of it, it's just like, it's an absolute minefield. It and is. I hate to think how many people out there are sitting there thinking they either just need to stay in that yeah. position or think that because they didn't stay in that, it is, as you say, well, it can be a failure, as you say, but that that's not a positive and that you didn't, I'm sure you'll think, I'm, I mean, putting words in your mouth, but I'm sure there's so much you learnt out yeah. of that position too, that in your relationship now and in your marriage now, you were, you were able oh, to kind of see, huge. actually, yeah. almost thank God. Yes. Oh, massively. Thank goodness. And we've both learnt so much from our failed relationships mm. that we can bring into our relationship now and do differently. 
And also I think it teaches you when you get divorced or when a long-term relationship ends or when you get fired from a job that you thought was a certain thing, um, not only does it force you to reevaluate, but it makes you realize how fragile things are. Yeah. And so the knock-on effect of that for me has been that I don't take anything for granted. I feel yeah. so lucky. And I also would hate the idea of anyone listening to this feeling like they're not worth opportunity because there are so many people who live in this world who don't get the multiple opportunities that I have had to fail that are people who, for whatever reason, their ethnicity, their background, their financial situation are not given as many opportunities to fail, um, are perceived differently. And I want those people to know that they are worth and worthy of opportunities mm. and taking risks. And that's easy for me to say, and the risk will always come at a greater cost. But I do passionately believe in that, mm. that, that we are all worthy of opportunity and yeah. of second chances mm, no, and I, third and fourth and fifth <laughs> I couldn't agree infinite more number. yeah <laughs> and so how did it get from this point where you were kind of as you say feeling like a little bit of a failure yeah you'd had recent things like you'd had a few years before I guess your first novel had come out you yeah. had a series of these things that I'm sure from from an outward perspective it probably looked like you were doing really yeah. well and that's just a career and all of these different things but I know that you've said before that you kind of like struggled with it with with those things how did that lead to you starting the podcast yeah so after my divorce I thought to myself well I'm going to do things differently now mm -hmm. I've learned so much I'm going to make different decisions and um, I got into a relationship about a year after um, with a lovely man. He was young, much younger than I was. I mean, not that much, young, nine years younger. But <laughs> at that stage, yeah. you know, that is quite a big difference because mm -hmm. I was in my mid to late 30s then. And that relationship lasted for about two years and then didn't work out because we were both at different phases. And mm -hmm. I found that utterly devastating because we broke up three weeks before my 39th birthday. 39th birthday. And I was like, here I am again and I just don't know what I'm doing and that's the moment that I felt most like a failure in my own life and I looked back at my 30s and I realized that for every time that I had failed or that things had gone wrong I'd also survived and that gave me this weird sense of strength and empowerment yeah and I was like how interesting that there's that ambiguity and so I started having more conversations with my friends about how that felt and I realized that those conversations were really rewarding. And at the same time as I was having those conversations and sort of coming to terms with various things in my personal life, in my professional life, I felt like I'd never really been brave enough to be myself. Right. And I think that that's quite a common feeling for anyone in their 20s and 30s. I was in a role where I was often sent to interview celebrities for newspapers. Mm -hmm. And I got very frustrated that they were always so formulaic, those interviews, that it was always about the latest movie they were promoting and how so-and-so was great to work with and let me tell you about my Oscar. And any time that there was a moment where I could veer off course and try and have a very human connection, that piece of writing would always end up edited out. And so I felt quite frustrated by that. Mm. And so it was those things came together and I thought I want to have conversations about things going wrong yeah and to to give lie to the image of curated perfection that we were also used to seeing on social media and 
podcasts were just starting really yeah. i mean i kind what of listened was it was 2018 mm-hmm. i yeah, listened yeah, to yeah. serial and loved it yeah and but that was right at the beginning it was and so i i thought oh here's an opportunity because it was actually a very open democratic form yeah where all you needed was like a mic and yeah some idea i mean i drew my own logo as you can yeah. probably tell i like i dm'd a hummus company for sponsorship <laughs> i i ebayed my old wedding dress for to 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 cover a sound engineer for that first season and i just started having conversations with, about failure with people who said yes to me and it was an amazing thing i thought it would last for a season and i thought it would just be eight guests and that would be it and I would have done something that I was proud of that where I did feel like I was being myself. And then it snowballed. And to my immense and grateful surprise, other people wanted to hear those conversations too. Yeah. And I'm not surprised at all because it's one of those ideas where you look back and you're like, why the hell weren't people talking about it? But yeah. it just, it makes so much sense. I also think that it's so interesting that in like traditional celebrity and, um, you know, Hollywood musicians, et cetera, et cetera, the aim is to be put on a pedestal. Like yeah. the aim is to have no, almost like no perception of failure. Like there's absolutely no, you know, there's nothing that went wrong. There's only like a rags to riches story afterwards, but there's never like the little blips along the way that mm. I even talked about or they're kind of everywhere all over the news and it's like ripping that person apart. Whereas in digital first celebrity or well-known yes. people it's almost completely the opposite. That's so interesting it's and, like, and true. It's like you get the I mean you get highlight reels of course and and no matter how much failure you see on like an influencers or or kind of podcasters or someone who's come up through whatever digital channel has talked about like you it was will definitely be a highlight reel but you almost always I guess they have to talk about these things because there's such an instant feedback loop that if they didn't it would be like what the hell are you Mm. on about Mm. um but I think at that time that hadn't truly no. been established and to be able to hear the other side almost to be able to hear traditional celebrity in a way that you would hear online people talking about their failures and actually giving insight into their lives I think is I mean you can see why people would be so incredibly interested in that I can now that's what yeah. I need to say and you're so right and also the other place where failure was spoken about openly was Silicon Valley at that stage right and you will know a lot more about this than I do. But when I researched my book, How to Fail, which came out a few months after the podcast had started, which again was not something I'd ever anticipated. I never thought I would write nonfiction. Yeah. My then editor approached me when the podcast started being like, I think there's a book in this. And one of the things that I found was that in Silicon Valley, there is this kind of macho bro culture. Well, there right. was then of fail fast, fail often, break yeah. things to create things. Yeah, yeah. And there were certain venture capitalists who would only invest funds if the entrepreneur in front of them had failed three times already mm-hmm. because they knew that that individual would have learned so much from that. That's time. so interesting. And I wonder as well, if you look at the statistics, whether that right was also given to women because yeah. I think what's really interesting is in order to be able to fail three times, you probably need to be able to get the successful backing around three times. And, great point. Great point. And yeah. actually, like statistically, I'm not sure if that's even possible with women's funding in terms of like yeah. the amount that goes into it. But also, you know, we see, for example, like the guy 
that started WeWork and the entire WeWork scandal has just been given hundreds of millions to do yeah. something else that actually it's kind of like, and yet you're not backing like any women. And of course you would have learned so much from that. And of course, doesn't take away from the fact that actually every single entrepreneur I've had sit here and talk about, um, you know, the most successful things have had, uh, people have had failures before and they've learned so much from it. I just think it's really interesting mm. that actually I'm not even sure that that right is given to women in the same yeah. space. And I think there's a broader point there about failure and women and marginalised people in the sense that when I started doing How to Fail, and I've spoken about this before, but what I basically relied on friends and contacts to be my first eight yeah. guests. And without exception, the women that I approached said, oh my God, I failed so many times. I just don't think I can whittle it down to three. I asked people to come up with three failures to form the basis of the interview. I know what this I just don't saying. think I can whittle it down. Every single man I approached, bar one, said, well, I just don't think I have failed. So <laughs> not sure I'd be right for this podcast. And it was hilarious because <laughs> it's like, I, actually, when I got them to do the interview, of course they'd failed. Yeah, and they gave right. really beautiful open interviews. It's just that they hadn't categorized it. They hadn't labeled it as failure. Which is such a strength. It's like the confirmation bias. Yeah. I think if you are a cis, white, middle-class man, you are born into a world that is still made in your image. Mm -hmm. So you are likely to believe that you will be successful in that world because it's friendly to you. And if you encounter failure, you see it as a, a perfectly overcomable obstacle on your path to eventual guaranteed success. Mm -hmm. If you are a woman, a marginalized person, a person of color, someone who lives with a chronic illness, you are not born into a friendly world. And therefore, that idea of confirmation bias down. Right. When you encounter so right. a failure, <laughs> when you encounter failure, you think I'm a failure. Right. You internalize it rather than seeing it as something external that you can get over. Right. So it's like extrapolating it out to everything in your life if yes. you fail and being like, I have proven via this one failure that I am a failure. Exactly. Rather than the opposite of being like, well, that's a little mistake. I guess I'll that's get on past that. Yeah. But I'm um, fine. Exactly. Yes. exactly. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things where it's like, how do we channel that mm. in a way where you're right that the reason that is the case is because the world is set up in a certain way. So it's kind of like, it's probably harder for people to challenge that if they're not in that position because you know it probably is you know life is probably predisposed slightly to make it harder for you then yeah. to succeed again that's why we need to change the world grace mm. and that's okay and sure. that's we'll add to my to-do list <laughs> but i i say that as a as a joke but i it also comes with serious intent that i believe conversations like this are extremely important mm. and in my little corner i'm doing what i can to reshape those kinds of conversations yeah. and to talk really passionately about the fact that we shouldn't internalize failure for these reasons. As long as we've tried our best, as much as possible, have to separate the outcome from the effort. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, we have to change the world. We genuinely, we have to change the structural inequalities, the systems that can feel so overwhelming. I personally am not sure that politics is the way to change the world in the way that we might aspire to do so, I actually think having influential conversations like this and constantly being aware of other people and their needs and using whatever platforms we all have in our own lives to ensure that we give equal opportunities for people to find their voices, that's how we change. Mm, Just yeah. being aware and kind. Yeah. 
no I think that's I think that's really really important and also that kind of just like reframing of failure in terms of thinking that yes it's still failure and we don't need to like gloss over that and we don't need to say no failure doesn't exist all of this it's like it does exist and it's yeah. a positive thing yeah um which I think is really really interesting not always like I have to say there are some failures that are cataclysmic and it would be monstrous for me to sit here and say right you can bounce back and, it, and it's positive some failures are awful and lifelong and will cause sadness and shame for many years and you might never get over them but the one thing I can guarantee is that you will learn something from them right. if you're open to that and that can help you that act of learning can help you be more at peace with them mm. yeah no I think that's really interesting when you think of your biggest failures yeah. what do you think of divorce is definitely up there and I am still on a fertility journey which mm -hmm. If you don't mind, I probably won't talk that much about no, it because no, no. I don't want to get emotional. Yeah. Um, even though I think emotion is beautiful, but I if feel, no, I feel you like... You need to protect your Yes, peace. it might yeah, derail yeah. this conversation because I'm still very much in mm -hmm. it. But um, I haven't had children yet and it's something that I really yearn for mm -hmm. and it's something that has been a battle of over, well over a decade. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I think I'm a failure for not having had a biological child, but it definitely feels like a lack and something that I want to ensure I've tried my hardest to make happen. Yeah. And I know that there are so many different ways to be a parent. I'm so grateful to live in, a, in an age where that is possible. Mm, yeah. And I have many amazing children in my life. And one thing that this journey has taught me is that there are so many incredible people who are living different kinds of lives and I'm so lucky that I've met them. Yeah. But I do find that really hard and it is something that when I said earlier about living alongside a failure and feeling at peace with it even though it makes you sad, it's one of those. It mm. makes me, it, I'm really sad about it. Yeah, absolutely and I think that's really, really powerful to say and I also think that what's particularly powerful is the looking at failure with an and as you say, like living alongside it, having this kind of, not just saying, oh, well, failure is good and this kind of like toxic positivity approach, yeah. but actually being able to have like a realistic approach and be like, and this makes me really fucking yes. sad. Yeah. And like, I, you know, and I am working for this not to be the case. And yeah. like, this makes me, you know, like all of this, but this, you uh, kind of that thought that you have to be able to be up within the down and you have to be able to live yes. your life and you have to be able to find joy and you have to be able to kind of create your peace alongside something and that doesn't mean that you need to like toxically put something in a box and exactly. be like oh no 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 I'm fine about it because exactly. you don't need to be fine about everything and actually it is toxic in lots of ways yeah. to be to not do that well thank you for being so understanding <laughs> and also for giving me the space to say that and I think you're completely right that actually if you try and lock it all in a box mm and get on with living your life through the prism of good vibes only, actually, that's the worst thing you can do. That that leads you to perspex screen territory mm, where your best yeah. friend's knocking on the door being like, let me in. You lose touch with yourself. Yeah, and it's, it is suppression. I mean, yeah. it's, um, there is real importance in being able to be open and honest and talk about things. Not everything we're going to be able to get over. Like, yeah. I think that's really important too. And if we kind of consider the only option 
of something we're not going to be able to get over is suppressing it, then we're just like setting ourselves up for failure. Yes. I also think there's re something really valuable in the way that a lot of your career has been around talking about failures. And I think we really see women in this way where kind of you talking about this journey, for example, we see women as having to divulge everything in order to be able to like justify you know why they feel about something yeah. and in order for us to be able to see them as vulnerable and in, yeah. in order for us so to be true. able to see someone as someone we want to follow online and actually fighting against that and being like I will talk about all the failure in the world mm. I do not want to talk about this and I have every right not to talk about this or in as much detail as I want to yeah. and that is my right yeah. and I think we don't give women that right and yeah. it's that's so true it's so true like it's the so fact that you even need to yeah kind of bring it up and then say do you know what I don't want to go into more detail we do that all the time with women, especially in positions of power and positions of success. We're like, oh, but they must be cagey about this because of this, because mm. we have to be able to know everything about a woman's life in, to, in order to be able to consider them a success. Yeah. Which I just think is so wild. <laughs> yeah, all for them to be owed the space that they're given. Mm -hmm. You have to have gone through pain and you have to carry scars. And, and it has to be the to... worst story. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting point. And I am a natural sharer. I believe that vulnerability and sharing is the source of all true connection mm. and it and and it is Im immensely important to me. And I've also come to realize that there is a difference between secrecy and privacy. I'm not being secret about anything, but I do reserve the right to be private about certain Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Especially when they involve other people. Mm. And I'm also a big believer in this culture of immediacy that we live in. I don't need to know how I feel about every single thing immediately. And, and a lot of the time, if it's a really big thing, I won't know. Mm. And so I know now that I need to give myself a grace period of understanding what it means before I feel that I will have anything of use or value to mm. share. I, I need that, uh, the grace of hindsight sometimes to do yeah. that. And I also feel that I, I love my online community. <laughs> That sounds like such a pretentious thing to say, but I like the people who follow me on Instagram. I get such an enormous amount from them. Yeah. And I want to be able to be um, a, like a kind and uplifting presence in their lives as much as possible. And actually, I don't, if I'm having a bad day about something, I don't always think I should share this so that I'm being real. I actually sometimes think I'm not going to share this online because I don't want to drag other people down yeah. on this particular day. There's sometimes I will, and sometimes there's a time and place, but yeah. a lot of the time I think there's great validity to be had in understanding, no, I can go to my close circle with that and they'll get me and that's where I'll do my processing. And I don't need to make someone else feel bad or triggered because I'm sharing it. Yeah, I think all of that is true. And I think that the ability to be vulnerable without needing to divulge every piece of information is really, really important because I think especially once you start being vulnerable, there's definitely, especially as a woman, there's definitely a reward mechanism for it online. And that's actually, I lost myself through that hugely. I'm naturally like very much a, a sharer. I'll like walk into a room of people I've never met before and I'll be like, I went on the worst date last yeah. night. And I'll like happily, you know, I'll give all the details and I'll be like, oh, you shouldn't have said that. Like yeah. that person's definitely going to go to, you know, and it's naturally who I am. And I spent years and years essentially doing that. And the more I shared, the more I was rewarded for it. And I also realized the more I completely stripped myself of like my right to privacy. Mm. But 
because it was something where people liked it and I made money from it and people thought they knew me and therefore they liked me because they could see my vulnerabilities. Mm. I was able to be successful through that. And then just got to a point where I completely lost myself in that. And I was actually like, no. And now I don't, and this is just a personal choice. I don't share any of my personal life online, really. I don't share any kind of big things that happen to me really in terms of if I don't think it's relevant yeah. because it's actually, I saw how much it made me see myself as like a commodity that people would only like me as a successful woman if they saw all of my vulnerabilities and the bad thing that happened to the me. The commodity of a woman's pain. It's, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it, it completely took over my life. And I think that just to be able to, it's taken a lot and it still takes a lot. Every time, like something really, like, you know, like something really traumatic happened, for example, like last week. And I was like, oh, I should probably talk about it. Otherwise it doesn't explain why, you know, I haven't mm. been online. I haven't been sharing these things. And actually, if you say something mean to me this week, I will cry. And like all of those things. But actually then just being like, no, I do not only deserve people's respect and kindness and time and, and whatever because I went through that or because I've shared that and because they know about mm. that. That should be a given anyway. And I will not act any differently and I will not give people the right to only see me as that or see me as someone yeah. to be kind to or any of these things because of those things and I think that that was one of the most powerful things I ever did for myself and mm. and how do you enjoy your online presence now I mean I do as yeah. a consumer Thank okay you. so what are your tips for curating that safe space for yourself it's really really interesting and I don't think I have like clear ring fencing I think I operate almost entirely off a gut feeling. Mm. And I think that the only reason I went against my gut feeling for so long was because it rewarded me so heavily. Like I made a lot of money. I had a lot of kind of really invested following who knew about my relationships and my life and all of these things that they were really, you know, they responded really well to. So I kind of was able to suppress that because my own gut feeling was counteracted by this gut feeling of, well, I like X, Y, and Z that I'm getting from it. Yeah. And so I guess now what I do is it's very much this kind of feeling of, it's not necessarily like, does this fit my brand? Cause I don't, I'm sure as you'll see if you follow me on kind of socials, like I don't really wholly care about that. I don't, tend to care too much about like coming across as a founder versus just doing the job and all of mm. these things which I definitely used to I think I think I enjoy it more I think I had an, this illusion that I would enjoy it less because people would like me less and give me less time because they wouldn't know about my life mm. and I actually enjoy it more because that's not the sole purpose of my life yeah and I don't live, need to give more to get more it's kind of this is what I mean, you get I to just, know? I just need you to post your wardrobe all the time. Which I, get. I love your outfit TikToks. Thank you. Yeah, never Thanks stop so doing much. those. <laughs> oh, I really appreciate that. Well, those are always funny as well. You, you've always got a sense of humour, <laughs> which is, I think, such a, an amazing thing to have Thank online. You. Like, yeah. Well, it's really interesting because I also get a, you know, I'd say for every like business YouTube video or story or anything I post, like there will also be people who are like, oh, I miss the fun grace. Like you used to be like this. It's like, she's still here. Yeah. She just has decided that actually like that right is reserved for, you know, people around me. And that's not like, I don't want that to come across as like a mean thing and being like, you don't have the right to that. People who have 
especially people who have supported me, like, I, you know, I, I'm so, so grateful. Mm. Cannot be giving away myself in no. order to make that happen. And I think recognise, and there are some people who can definitely do both. I'm not saying that everyone who yeah. talks about their private life online is, you know, kind of selling their soul for it. Not at all. But for me, that was the effect it had. So it was about acknowledging that actually, like, maybe, like, the money and stuff and, like, the engagement mm. and stuff probably, like, wasn't quite yeah. worth it for me. I think also it's something that I've only really noticed in hindsight mm. and just being able to come to terms with the fact that like there is a percentage of people who will think that the fun grace is gone and I'm like really boring um which is fine well like, anytime I, you think of them think of me being like oh, look at her, <laughs> look at her neutral this. jacket <laughs> <laughs> yeah great I will that's literally just okay. gonna be what's gonna pop to my head at all times <laughs> to round it off I'd love to know what the biggest things are that you've learned from your podcast and mm -hmm. interviewing such incredible people about, I guess, the unseen areas of their life? Well, big question, but there's a few answers. I think the podcast guest who has most influenced me on a personal level is Mo Gaudat. He was on season four of the podcast, so very early on. And it was just ahead of the publication of his book, Soul for Happy in the UK. Mm. And oh, it's so very early in his career. Very as well. early. Yeah. yeah. I always like to be like, by the I way, I go in first. <laughs> I go in first. I will be listening. That will be added. I will be clicking the it's plus. a phenomenal episode because of him, mm -hmm. because of how extraordinary he was. So I didn't have many formed expectations going into that interview. I'd read his book and I knew it was going to be a really interesting conversation. But he is such an extraordinary, soulful man who also comes from this engineering statistical background. Mm. And the combination of the two he applied to the problem of happiness and he claims that he can make any person happy and he's developed an algorithm for happiness, which is all about managing our expectation, essentially. Um, and he went through a really traumatic life event when his beloved son, Ali, died at the age of 21 during a routine operation. And he had to put his own algorithm for happiness to use in one of the worst situations you can possibly imagine. And he explained it to me like this. He said, for weeks after Ali died, I would wake up and the tears were streaming down my cheeks. And my first thought on waking would be Ali died. And after a few months of that, he was like, I can't carry on living with that weight of grief. And he woke up every morning and he was still crying. And his first thought was still Ali died. But he added, and he also lived. And within that second half of that sentence was 21 years of father-son love, um, of joy, of playfulness, of a family life, and it enabled him to carry on living. And that, for me, was such an emotional and extraordinary shape-shifting thing to hear, because it's all about your thoughts and managing your thoughts and how you speak to yourself. And Mo taught me how to do that. And he has this thing where he calls his brain Becky after a girl at his school who was really annoying and constantly pointing out the things that would go wrong. <laughs> And he says that when his, his brain is caught on that anxious narrative loop of saying, you're a failure, you're a terrible parent, your daughter doesn't love you anymore, you forgot to turn the toaster off this morning, he stops himself and says, Becky, where is your objective evidence for that assertion? Because if you don't have objective evidence for that assertion, I'd love you to take that negative thought and replace it with a positive one. And in that way, you can train yourself to be happier. And in that way, you can train yourself to deal with failure mm. because you can say to your Becky brain, 
why are you telling me I'm a failure? I'm not a failure. I've got this. Thank you for your concern. But do you know what? I've got this. And it's a way of sort of just slightly distancing yourself from that anxious narrative loop. That's been genuinely like life-changing for me. And then there's another piece of advice that came from Deborah Francis White, who's the host of the Guilty Feminist podcast. And she has a background in acting and theatre. And she used to do improv classes. And she talks about how there was this one improv exercise where you had to keep improvising on stage. And if anyone in the audience was bored, they would just walk out of the room. <laughs> so you had to keep like coming up with stuff to keep people interested. That's like my worst nightmare. Awful That's like nightmare. my equivalent of like realizing I'm completely naked in public. Yeah, hideous. And she said that the times when people walked out of the room, actually they were difficult, but they were very, very helpful because she acquired data about what worked. So all failure is data acquisition. Anytime you fail at something, you can acquire necessary data for the next time or for personal growth. And you could apply that to so many areas of life. We're talking at a time when Liz Truss has just stepped down as prime minister. Potentially, the data that she acquired from that failure was that she was in the wrong job. <laughs> yes, go find, go find another job that is better suited yeah. to your skills. I, as I've mentioned, met my husband on Hinge. I went through so many dates, which were disappointing, but I did acquire data about what I wanted in someone and how to do dates better. And that led me to Justin. And I'm mm. so grateful for that. So all failure can be data acquisition has really helped me too. I love those two. I will be taking those and using them in my life. I have this little mm. note on my notes app, which is just like, you know, when like something makes you feel something, like you're listening to something and it's a quote mm. or it's someone talking yeah. about something like, and it really makes you stop and feel something. I have this like little note that I just add all of those things to so that at some point I can just like go back and scroll through it. Or if I'm having like a really bad day or if I just need some grounding, whatever it might be. And those will be going straight in the notes. <laughs> this is why you're such a good planner. But I equally cannot deal with, that, with a problem without putting it into a pre-made table, which okay. I also have on my document. So like, there's probably something wrong there. <laughs> no, I think that sounds really, I wish I was more like that. I still, Excel spreadsheets terrify me. Yeah. Your naked dream me. is my Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> really? My Excel spreadsheet is my heaven. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. You're amazing. I've loved it. Thank you so much for having me. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com